Greetings, welcome to Beetle Stuffology, where two old friends sit around and talk BS, Beetle stuff, on a track by track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG Macquarie, and I'm here with my co host Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm struggling through a cold, but otherwise I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. You sure it's a cold? Because a few minutes ago, before we press record, you said flu. Well, I'm getting better, so it's been downgraded. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Don't, I'm don't sure that's how doctors. it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, My medical degree is from Dr. Roberts. Yeah. 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 Very good. So, um, you know, probably appropriate then if you're feeling under the weather that we're talking about and B-side today. Well, yes, absolutely. Not only has my has my condition been downgraded, but since we talked about I Want to Hold Your Hand last week, so has our song, which means this week we are talking about this boy. Um, so we're back in the world of doo-wop. Oh, excellent. My favourite. Um, what do you think of this one? It's, I don't think this is a song I'd actually heard until we started talking about doing this, because I don't own any of the Beatles singles, funnily enough. I wasn't around at the time. And I've not been someone who's dived into the um, the huge collections. I did have a copy, a, a CD copy of the, the Beatles at the BBC, but I only ever really listened to the songs that I already knew on there. I didn't sort of delve into some of the other ones. So I came at this completely fresh and I really didn't like it at first. But in the last week, I've listened to it quite a lot and it's annoyingly growing on me. Okay, that's 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 fair enough. Lots of lots of things grow, um, like mold. Um, I, I yeah, I think this is a, it's one of those songs that I think if you it I've mentioned this when we were talking about uh, with the Beatles, uh, whereby the some of the songs that they've recorded uh, for that particular album are kind of good enough sort of versions of those styles whether you want to call them parodies or pastiches or whatever, that it's not always immediately clear whether it would be a Lennon-McCartney or an original. And I think this is another one that falls into that category. I think if you didn't know that this was a Lennon-McCartney original, you would be perfectly happy to listen to it and go, yeah, it's just like some obscure 50s B-side or um, some some doo-wop girl group that, that never really cracked the stage but presumably had a single hanging around at NEMS at some point. You know, it's it's a very, very spot-on parody, pastiche, whatever you want to call it, of that kind of sort of late 50s doo-wop sound. It's, it's a very accurate capture of that unfortunately but to me it's very much like a song by a group with a funky name the penguins um and actually it's, I'm, I'm not going to claim to have um have heard the have been influenced by the penguins original version but in fact the version that was played on the 1980s stone cold film classic um back to the future it's that song earth angel the one in which martin mcfly is just literally just strumming on his guitar and playing the chords um, but actually, if you listen to it, there are similarities. But then when they were writing, they were writing a, a genre piece. They were trying to mimic um, a particular style. So the fact that it evokes a song from you know the previous decade is is not necessarily a failure. I think it's it's a compliment that they managed to do it so well. Now, when I say I like it, I'm not saying for a moment that I think it's going to be up there with, with you know, any of the classics. 
but it's certainly a lot smoother in what it does than than some of the the you know the gubbins that ends up on on the first couple of albums you know this to me is is a far better song than something like say misery you know so it shows that in in that time they've moved on in their craft much better songwriters now and there's, there's nothing that jars in this which i think is is really quite an interesting thing and they're obviously hitting a bit of a purple patch as it was written close to when they wrote i want to hold your hand and recorded on the same day so i think it kind of it actually gets the same level of enthusiasm that clearly went into recording that i definitely think you're right about the level of enthusiasm i think there is uh a tangible energy about the song and that they are investing in it for all that it's it's a very good sort of copy of that style i mean i mean you're actually i should say that you're right about that as well i, I it's not an insult to say that they do a very good version of it even though that's probably what i made it sound like um i didn't really mean that to be um pejorative as such it's it's not really a style that i personally like but they do a very very good job of capturing it um, and yeah, that energy and enthusiasm leaks over from, from I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, the uh, impassioned middle eight that, that Lennon belts out is uh, easily, and I really do mean easily, the best part of the song. It's got some real kind of raw emotion to it, which um, is very, very different in, in, in style to the kind of the upbeat jauntiness of, of I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's very raw. It's very open. And and it's it's incredibly effective. It's it's by far and away the best part of the song. But yeah, absolutely. That all that energy, all that life from from the from the previous recording session is absolutely still audible on this one. And and in a very very different style. Those three part harmonies are really difficult to do. Um, and yet the the three part harmonies are are you know really the you know the kind of primary feature of the song. So um, there's part of me that thinks that harmonization is is overrated and effectively what you've got is two people singing at the same time wowee um and even some of the beatles um harmonies yeah are kind of stretching it and and pushing their luck a bit but then you're not going to hit gold every single time but there is something about this one that that is genuinely effective that does sort of um stand up for a bit of admiration and and it's worth highlighting um dear listener you may well already be aware of this there is a relatively short youtube clip of george harrison perhaps in i think maybe the early 70s watching um some tv footage of them singing this boy and and he just looks i mean bear in mind how cynical he would have been about the beatles at that stage you can see the joy in revisiting this partly revisiting you know the younger selves but you can sort of see that there's there's I wouldn't say a purity because then I'm entering into self-parody territory but there's something that captures the imagination something that reminds him of the joy that they found in each other's company it's quite an affecting um, little piece which he then kind of ruins by just then talking about how John was blind as a bat and didn't like to wear his glasses but you can see he genuinely loves watching that clip I suppose they could have picked anything, but the fact it happened to be this boy um, is, is you know, a pretty moving little thing. So 
Um, yeah, so there's definitely that that kind of joy that goes into it that I think is is worth celebrating. It's not one of their work songs. It's not something that they've knocked out, recorded and forgotten about because they are not just, you know, remember there are plenty of songs that they record that they never play live. This is one that they are playing and on some of the biggest television shows on the planet. They play it on the second appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show and also then on um, Two of a Kind, which is um, you know, one of those early Morecambe and Wise shows in the UK. So there's there's something about it that, that they clearly admired. That clip of George Harrison is one of the most charming things you could ever possibly see in your life. It is an absolutely delightful moment. Um, I, I agree with you when you say that it's not a... A work song. You can't you can't do like close three part harmonies like that as a work song. That takes time. That takes effort. That takes practice. Um, and it's interesting listening to the version which is on Anthology One, because Lennon's voice breaks on the middle eight, uh, which is understandable. It's a very kind of you know it's very you know he has to really go for it. Um, but the version which is on live at the BBC, he manages to get all the way through. You can just tell the difference. In, in, in practice and in experience and delivering the, the song between the two different versions of it. It's one of those songs that I do think, though, is forgotten, even although it was played on the big TV shows. Um, so I'm going to slightly disagree with you there. I think that's one of the reasons that when you see that clip with George Harrison, it's so charming because it's it's kind of a forgotten song. Like if you talk about, you know, like the big songs which were played on, Ed Sullivan. Well, that's what we did last week. We talked about I Want to Hold Your Hand. We talked about this huge cultural impact that it had. It's only logical that a sort of fairly minor B-side like this is going to be completely eclipsed. And even when people look back on like the earliest part of the, of the Beatles' career, say 62 to 64, you know, it's the big singles that dominate. It's going to be Can't Buy Me Love. It's going to be I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's going to be Love Me Do, all that kind of stuff. I think this is a pretty forgotten song. It's on past masters but you kind of have to be a real fan to go out and dig out past masters like you said yourself if you listen to live at the bbc maybe you listen to the songs you know so slightly slightly ropey um b-side that you don't quite remember kind of gets forgotten in the shuffle i really think that's why it's so charming when you see george harrison watching that clip because it's just it's just not that well remembered a song and there are so many other reasons as well but i i think it's it's comparative obscurity compared to the kind of the big ticket items is is one of the reasons that that kind of charm is there. I don't think it is ropey though. That's I mean it certainly stands up against a, a ropey recording, I should say, not a ropey song. Sorry, my, my There's mistake. There's so much that yeah. happened between this recording and that YouTube clip that you could understand why you know George has um, has forgotten something as this. Sometimes we need things to. Um, evoke a, a particular memory. Um, so there's certainly, though, once remembered, a lot of warmth um, that comes with it, which I think is 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 an absolutely wonderful thing. Um, there is kind of a quirk about the the two TV appearances um, that you know we've made reference to. Obviously, um, we're talking about Feb. I think it's February sixteenth was the the second. Um, appearance on the Ed Sullivan show and you know it was recorded and broadcast basically in one go that's it recorded done out the recording for the Morecambe and Wise show two of a kind was actually done in November quite close to the the point at which the the single was actually recorded 
but it wasn't broadcast until April 64, which is weird, by which point Can't Buy Me Love had already been released. So therefore there, you know, and I think that's that's something we spoke about last week was the nature of British and American television. I think it's much more in keeping with, with British television to, you know, to record that and be a little bit amateurish perhaps in terms of not knowing when it's going to go out. Well, yeah, and the sheer pressure for me, am I, to get product out there and keep product out there was was utterly relentless. So it really didn't take much time for um, something like this to just be, you know, a, 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 the the object in the rearview mirror. It, it it fades away very very quickly indeed. And yeah, you're quite right about the sort of the nature of British television not really having any proper understanding about the nature of the recording industry because there's just no way that you could you could have any. Uh, you know, meaningful correlation between the two since they were, they, they kind of treated each other with complete, you know, well, I was going to say contempt, maybe that's too strong yeah. a word, but you know, like the BBC was actively avoiding having that much to do with mainstream popular culture. It was still a real tension within the BBC in, in 1963 as to whether they should really have anything to do with it at all because they were not seen as being in a position to sort of uh, mould tastes, shall we say, and make choices about uh, what people should or shouldn't be listening to so it was it was very much something that they were um you know in in two minds about and and even though obviously the bbc not the only broadcaster on television at the time but still the main one and and what they went carried or how they reacted and their attitude toward things still carried huge influence over to itv at that point as well hey there do you want to know a secret go on the morecambe and wise show at that time was on itv not bbc that's that's why I mentioned ITV at the end, because the BBC still set the tenure for so much of how those industries were going across. So don't worry. That's why it was okay, there. Good. Just make sure we're covered. I, don't know. I mean, technically it was ATV okay. at good. that stage, because it was obviously broken up into many different colours, companies. But um, yes. yeah, basically yes. think Lou Grade. Let's, let's not get into that argument yeah, right okay. now. Um, well, no, yeah, anyway. Um, but there's, there's something quite interesting in in the way um, that it's, um, it's performed on there. Uh, I, I've um, to know whether this is the case you may be able to tell me um, but it's quite interesting watching Ringo um, because or Bongo as uh, Eric Morecambe called him uh, on the show it, it, it doesn't sound funny but because it's Eric Morecambe it actually work when you watch it um, he is playing with brushes and mostly on the cymbals obviously you know, there's the light touch on the bass drum as well. It's only in that middle eight where he then starts to actually hit the drums as well. But bearing in mind, you know, he's doing it all with brushes, which I think is is quite interesting. And it, it's effective, a little bit unusual, but it really works for the song. And I think it, it just kind of emphasizes the fact that, that we're, this song is really all about the vocals. You know, there there is a bit of a guitar lick that, that is effective, but you know, if it wasn't sung in a particularly interesting and effective way, the song wouldn't be half as interesting as it actually is. So kudos to Ringo. Gosh, you find something nice I'm, I'm never Ringo. rude about Excellent. Ringo. It's just that, that normally I bow to your superior uh, Ringo-osity. Okay, that's uh, good to have that word in our vocabulary now. Um, but you're right. I mean, this the song, uh, mu- musically speaking, the song really does hinge on the, on the, on the rhythm section of the band. McCartney's doing another you know, spot on kind of doo-wop bass line. Uh, it's kind of running along in the same way. Um, but I, I do agree with what you're saying about Ringo. I think it's one of the one of the ways you can see he's a very considered 
drummer because I think it would be quite easy to do the verses just on on a bit of snare, maybe a little bit of tom to fill it out or whatever. But he keeps it very kind of minimal, like you say, a little bit of brushwork in the cymbals, a little bit of bass, um, and that gives him somewhere to go when they reach to the middle eight. So when it fires up and Lennon's doing his huge kind of plaintive melodramatic lead vocal, Ringo can then he's got something that he can then you know pull out the can he can he can find space to put more emphasis on it and almost all of that middle eight is just lennon's vocal and ringo and it's incredibly effective it gives it that extra power and then it just pulls back it brings that tension as the middle eight comes back and then you fall back into kind of the three-part harmonies as the as the drama from the middle eight sort of dissipates it's extremely effective but it's not showy it's not particularly flashy um and that's you know that's that's Ringo all over it's just it's a very considered piece of drumming it's I know it's such a cliche to say about Ringo but it's exactly what the song needs and it's a, it is a really good but a very low-key kind of example of that I think it's interesting as well um and we've spoken we obviously we spoke about this last week uh or last episode when we were talking about the the lineup on the Ed Sullivan show and just how different the Beatles were from everybody else and and I'm pretty sure that we have spoken about the the role variety performance as well where again they were by far the most kind of like advanced um in terms of what we regard now as as you know popular culture of the time you know they were very much at, at the at the vanguard well you know if you look at I mean, bearing in mind how uh popular we know that Morecambe and Wise were um particularly in the 70s so in the 60s they're still building up to that they are still a big deal on on itv at this stage um they had a lot of uh, musical acts on but up to the beatles they were very much the um you know i suppose the vocal groups um you know the this the sort of not quite cabaret but you know kind of old style pop acts um that were very very tame and would be singing the covers and you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, very kind of um, tame by by modern comparisons, and also the likes of, of say, Akabilk um, and um, Ray Ellington uh, is another example. If you know, um, listener out there may be aware of the Goon Show, and that Ray Ellington was the singer on just about every episode of um, of the Goon Show in their musical interludes. The Beatles don't exactly herald a massive breakthrough. It's not until 66 that you start getting, I mean, bear in mind this was broadcast in 64, that you get more consistently, um, you know, bands like The Kinks and, um, you know, Herman's Hermits and, um, you know, a couple of, oh, The Moody Blues, for example. You know, for the, the series that followed the one that The Beatles were on was still very tame. One thing I do find quite interesting is that sometimes you can, again, it's like last week, join up the dots of popular culture, except last week I seemed to be doing it with, with um, um, uh, Star Trek. But the group that was on the following week um, after the Beatles was called the Viscounts. And they, and you know, you won't have probably ever heard anything. I've only sort of did a bit of research and they, you know, who put the bam in the bam, 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 whatever. Anyway, it's, it's just, you know, everything you'd imagine. However, the guitarist ended up leaving and wrote, co-wrote, It's Not Unusual for Tom Jones, which is interesting. And that's not a bad, not a bad pedigree to have. It's not bad. And dear listener, that's the first of two references in this week's episode to Tom Jones's 
it's not unusual. See if you can work out ahead of time where the second one's going to be. There you go. So, you know... I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, or at least not successfully. No? Oh, good. Right. I might be um, I might be ahead of you on this one. But then you've you've not been well with your cold slash flu. So, um, yeah, yes. fair enough. Um, it's all right. It'll be terminal by the end of the episode. Yes, yes, it will be. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, mean, I must admit, um, I... I slight apology i kind of glossed over the um uh, the middle eight remark you made earlier um and it's I've kind of been holding back because i've got a a mere culpa yes mere culpa go for it what's your mere culpa john lennon's vocal on this is really good oh now that must have been a painful admission for you to no, make well, no because it's it's fine you know the one thing about having an opinion is that it's subjective and you should be allowed to change your mind overall i still think he's nasally and you know, it, um, it kind of don't necessarily dislike it, but don't necessarily think it's as great as, as you know, um, some people seem to think. But on this, there's there's something that that works, um, and in particular that middle eight. There's there's a genuine sense of emotion there that feels real, possibly. He may just be a a half decent actor at this stage, but it feels like he he's feeling. Um, every single part of that, um, but you know he's he's clearly in a good run of writing middle eights at this point. We had um, I want to hold your hand, and on um, with the Beatles, we've also got all I've got to do, and I really like the middle eight on all I've got to do because it just sort of you know picks up the pace as a kind of change of tempo um, that is so effective. And I want to hold your hand. It, it sort of builds to a kind of crescendo before dumping you back in the song. Um, and then going, there you go, look at me, aren't I good? This one just really hits you that, that there's a little bit more to this. Um, and and it's just, just really pleasing to find that, that when he's hitting those top notes, he's doing it with a sense of, of kind of power and clarity. Um, and that almost sounds like I know what I'm talking about. When in fact, folks, it's just purely subjective. I think you are completely correct, though. I mean, I think it's an amazing performance from him in the middle eight, and it is one that, that has real kind of force and emphasis on it. And I, I suspect that's what we were talking about earlier with the, the sort of the energy sort of leaking over from I want to hold your hand. Uh, but it's that same kind of uh, power, but deployed in a very kind of different way. It is very heartfelt. It feels very genuine. And that's not always a word which one can associate with John Lennon. He's, he's very inclined to... Uh, rewrite his own mythology and, 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 and try and cover stuff up with sarcasm and wit and, and everything else. But here it feels very raw. It feels very genuine. It feels it feels very powerful. There's, there's a reason at the top of the episode I said it was by far and away the best part of the, the song because I think it unquestionably is. Um, and it does show that even at this point, you know, his voice does have proper range to it. You know, he this is the other thing about everyone says about Lennon is that particularly compared to McCartney he's kind of fairly um, flat as in horizontal not as in off key um, and uh, and you know this song kind of gives the lie to it you know McCartney often gets the big kind of soaring kind of vocals if you think at this sort of point you know um, I mean, I'm down isn't that far away, but you know, there's a lot of kind of really, she's a woman is another, I suppose. Uh, there's a lot of those kind of vocals which will be coming from McCartney. Um, 
But, you know, I mean, when Lennon wants to, he can. And we absolutely have a perfect example of it here. It's an astonishingly good vocal performance. And buried away in a little B-side that doesn't even get a, you know, doesn't even get a proper, um, you know, album track or, or release right up until right up until Past Masters. It's, it's astonishing. So how buried away can a song actually be when it has pre-release orders of around a million? Well, buried away post-release. I okay. mean, yeah, obviously this did sell and... a metric fuck ton. That goes, that does go without saying. But like I said before, it is still kind of forgotten. I mean, like the like Harrison's reaction kind of proves it. It was still a forgotten song, performed, even if it did have pre-orders of a million. Performed on a show in America that was was watched by around seventy million people. Um, I I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. But I I, I think the 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 nature of uh, of b-sides perhaps when when we were first buying singles is maybe different um in terms of the way people oh, I don't know maybe even even when we were first buying singles we were this because it, it was basically all we had to go on until we might be buying them because the single was also on the album and therefore we were hoping that something on the b-side would have added that extra little bit of, of value to it but there was so few physical products available i kind of suspect that people did listen to i want to hold your hand quite a lot and then probably listen to to the b-side quite a lot as well because you know what it's it's all we've got we can't watch recordings of, of the tv program you know if we missed it we've missed it but here i've got something physical i can just play over and over and over again um but you know i, I think the nature of of the product in the industry at the time probably suggests it was it was pretty well um probably pretty well listened to but i think it's um, um I, I, i'm sure it was but I, w- I would also i'd also go on to point out the fact that um you know singles even even when they do sell a million you know whatever they they do the, it, it, they are by their very nature ephemeral they will mm-hmm. fade and the fact is that, that as a b-side uh, something like this simply wouldn't be put out like i said i don't think this was released in anything until past masters so there would be you know well over a decade before the uh, well nearly two decades in fact between the release of the single and past masters something like i want to hold your hand does crop up on compilations it's definitely on a collection of beatles oldies i'm pretty certain it's on the red album as well so some of those songs do get get released in other formats and so hang around popular consciousness a lot more whereas something like this boy which is 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 functionally an obscure b-side simply drops out of sight unless you still have a physical copy of that single and like you said it's it sold a huge amount but it would still fade into obscurity next to next to the big ticket songs next to the big singles because it simply never got re-released anymore and then of course we get into the uh the conversation about um a, you know a phrase that that i don't particularly like but then there are lots of those modern phrases that i don't particularly like like so and so dropping an album no 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 no, no, no. But the the other one that that um, uh, people use that bugs me and would apply to this is it's a deep cut. This is a deep cut. <laughs> and we all know that's why if you say obscure rather than deep cut, it's obscure. There are, not a... <laughs> there are plenty of fans of bands who value their ability to pick out a deep cut and cherish it for more than the thing that is clearly a better product. But you know. Anyway, not quite sure where we're, we're drifting to um, in those terms. Um, when actually there are, I mean, there's still, you know, plenty that, that that's worth um, a focus on here because this is another in, in the um, the vast canon of 
uh, John Lennon self-pity songs. Um, you know, and I think it's it's up there. No, actually, it's not up there. It's above the likes of you mentioned earlier, Misery, where I've lost her now for sure. I won't see her no more. And it won't be long where since you left me, I'm so alone. Not a second time. Well, actually, that's kind of an indication is he said, well, I've been left and I've been hurt, but you're not going to do it again. I suppose you could also include a later one like, you know, run for your life when he's kind of turned the tables where he's no longer self-pitying. Oh, he's just angry. Um, and, you know, and the one that, that um, it occurred to me is also a Lennon self-pity one. And it wouldn't surprise me in Freud fans um, if at all that it was also the subject of a, of a song like some of these, like Misery. I've lost her now for sure. I won't see her no more. And that song being Mother, you know, I wanted you so bad, but you didn't want me. Bless poor John. Poor, poor John. But he does write a lot of these. But actually, there's something about this song that feels a little bit different because he does something that is a little bit clever. There you go. I'm being so nice about John today. It's, it's, um, it's quite interesting. Um, the thing that, that I think that John does um, uh, that's a little bit clever is just the use of two simple words, this and that. And the fact that this is this is called This Boy but actually, you get straight into the song after the, the, you know, the jingly jangly opening and it starts with that boy. And automatically you go, ah, oh, OK, I wasn't expecting that. And it is that, that sort of, you know, unusual way of doing it, saying, well, that boy is with you. This boy wants you back, um, which is, it is a really simple way of doing it. But it is very, very effective. Lyrically, it just sort of strikes you as being just a touch different from all of these others. Oh, woe is me. Isn't life so bad? Oh, I'm in such misery without you. It's that sense of, well, that and this. And I think this is where perhaps he starts to develop a sense of, of you know, narrative and character as opposed to the previous incarnation, which is just all about a splurge of, of nonsense words. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing whether or not that, that is true. And, and, and um, listener, you can read my book, John Lennon's Lyrics, All Inspired by the Loss of His Mother, um, which is due out um, whenever I can get round to write it. It shouldn't take long. It should be a very, very short book. In fact, you've probably just heard the entire transcript. Um, yes, marvellous. Well, we'll all look forward to that being in the bookshops um, sometime soon, shall we? Um, but the word I think that you used uh, there, which is the one that I would I would sort of pick up on, is is narrative. I think that's what that little change in vocabulary gives the song. I think if it was just if it was just this or that all the way through, it would give the song a singular perspective, which would be fine, but comparatively unremarkable but just something as simple as that switch gives it a narrative it gives it uh you know uh two perspectives um which are essentially competing with each other even although they're they're very similar in their outlook it's it like you said it's a very small change but it makes a huge difference um to the way that the lyric comes across it, it's a really genuinely smart piece of writing a tiny little change but it, it really shifts the focus on everything yeah, it's, it's kind of like how people lose their shit when they hear the final verse of the one i love it's like oh a simple prop has occupied 
my mind Ooh, what does he mean there <laughs> but, but yeah yeah you know it's it's interesting we you know there's there's a fair chunk about this song and actually what i would suggest is that that if people haven't um listened to this before if like me they're they're relatively you know new to this the 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 one recording that is probably the best one to have a look at is the recording from the washington dc concert um yeah. you know it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really good really really powerful um and you know their first concert in america um and and they just they just love playing it it's great and you get such a good reaction it's so clear and um, you know, you can see the fans all around because they were playing in the round. Uh, it's just a really effective and affecting piece that that would you know actually make you quite pleased for once that you've dipped into the um, the back catalogue and listened to something that's that's a little bit more obscure. That said, when we get to it, and I suspect it's probably not that far away, I'm still not going to give it more than a six out of ten because it is a piece of uh, froth and, and ephemera. It's it's nice, um, but it's nice for all the sorts of reasons why it's nice in 1963. It's not going to be you know anything more significant than that come the end of 64 in the 65 you know it's the sheer quality of what follows that means it is you know in in your terminology that that sort of forgotten and obscure deep cut um you know for a lot of other bands this could be one of their biggest hits an awful lot of bands 63 64 who don't last into 65 66 and that's the other thing about the um the the acts on on that Morecambe and Wise um um show is that the ones that are on in 63 and 64 tended to have been quite well known in 56 7 8 9 60 and 61 there is that time lag um you know no one really survives in well no one survives in the way that the Beatles do um but it's almost that that sort of moment um where where things are, uh, you know you can see this is a, um, a moment of greatness so you know have a look at it um and and please do you know dear listener let us know if you actually sort of feel the same way that this is you know perfectly fine for for the Beatles but would actually be significantly um greater for most other acts at the time well I guess I don't really have to ask you what your score for this one is then thank you for ten. thank you for preempting ten, that definitely a 10 10 <laughs> um I'm gonna havering sort of between a five and a six um oh, I don't know a five I think maybe uh, compare it to I'm not going to give it a half point you'll be pleased to hear com- compare it to, to what you've already given a 5 to hmm that's a good point let me have a look at my master list uh, what else have I given a 5 to hold me tight not a second time it's 5.5 don't bother me I'll get you uh, there's a alright I'll give it a 6 fine <laughs> fair fair. no that's a, that is an entirely fair point I will also give it a 6 I thank you I thank you I thank you yeah well done you made it through Good, excellent, yes, and I can still just about talk, and so before I lose that ability, uh, let's uh, wrap things up. You can contact us by email, and please do so. We are beetlestuffology at gmail.com. 
We're on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. And you can find my blog at www.jgmacquarie.scot. Also check out my other podcast, which is Talking Trek to You, where a noob and an expert, me apparently, goes through the original Star Trek series episode by episode. Please like, rate and review us on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show. Next week, it's a new album and a fresh start, which means it's going to be a hard day's night. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep listening.